I'm Emily Williams, and this is Understand South Carolina, a weekly podcast from the Post and Courier. 2021 is nearly over, so this week we're taking a look back at some of the conversations and stories featured on our shows in the last year. We've covered a little bit of everything, flooding in Charleston, the coronavirus pandemic, South Carolina politics, and even the design of the state's flag. Today, I'm joined by Gavin McIntyre, who's going to help me as we revisit moments from this year's episodes. Thanks for being here, Gavin. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this year. It kind of flew by, but I'm a little surprised about the variety of things we covered here in South Carolina. It was kind of funny. The first thing that we covered was the design of the state flag, which you don't think would be a controversial subject, but it got a lot of people riled up. Yeah, I think a lot of people are familiar with South Carolina's flag, but one thing that I didn't know until we covered this story is that even though the components of the flag are consistent, there's the indigo background, the palmetto tree, the gorget, there isn't a standardized design for the flag. So there isn't a specific shade of indigo or a specific design of a tree. At least there isn't one now, but some people want to have a standardized flag. Right. And it was a little surprising because you see the state flag at football games, on the state house grounds, T-shirts, on hats. So a committee was trying to come together and figure out what would be the standard design for South Carolina. And reporter Avery Wilkes wrote about how they decided on what it would look like. Yeah, so the design that this committee had kind of settled on, or at least at that time before they got some feedback, there was some pretty harsh criticism of it. I think one of the things that I saw on Twitter was someone comparing the palmetto tree that they'd chosen to a toilet brush. Back in January, we talked to Scott Malyark, who was part of that committee that was choosing the design about the criticism and what it meant for their effort. We had a five-member committee. We all agreed on this design to put forth. We all agreed on the color. We all agreed on the crescent. We all agreed on the tree. I was surprised about the, the amount of interest that existed out there because it just didn't seem to be a whole lot in the very beginning. You look at Twitter, you looked at Facebook, you looked at websites, emails and things. And, and, and uh, I would say there was a pretty, pretty high percentage of, of comments that were, were, were not favorable to the tree, which is fine. I, I didn't expect, you know, a lot of folks called it the, the Charlie Brown palmetto tree. It looked like it just came through Hurricane Hugo or, you know, a number of comments that were um, less, less nice. I think it's great. And I think it's, you know, one of those things that message received Thanks. Thanks for commenting. We appreciate it. I think our committee is looking at getting back together again to put forth um, something new uh, and, and do an amendment to the bill so we can add another version, but still based on his historical data of the flag. One of the terms that I associate with 2021, because I had never heard about them before, and now I feel like I hear about them all the time, is NFT, or non-fungible token. In March, there was a digital artist who goes by Beeple who sold a piece of digital art as an NFT for $69.3 million to the art auction house Christie's. I had never heard about NFTs before that story. And since we did the podcast and Kaylin Oyer, a reporter at the Post and Courier, wrote about Beeple. I've seen so many articles about how you can make your own NFT. I've seen a lot of photographers, you know, across the country discussing how they did it. So it's so interesting to see how it's kind of grown since then. And what a lot of people don't know about Beeple is that 
His real name is Mike Winkleman, and he actually lives here in North Charleston. Yeah, so that's what localized this kind of big NFT story about his huge sale with Christie's. So as part of that episode, we spoke with Gerald Dwyer, who teaches about blockchain and cryptocurrencies at Clemson University, because NFTs were still pretty new at that point. So basically, we asked them, how do these work? The idea of these is, is that they're non-fungible in the sense they're unique. This gets into the Ethereum blockchain and different contracts on it. And so there's a contract that's created for non-fungible things. That is, you get a certificate from the person who's selling it, and it says, this is the file. What they're saying is, is I won't sell another one that's an NFT of this same file. And so you have the only one of those. This is sort of like the CryptoKitties thing. It's actually related. That was a few years ago where people would make digital kitties and then they could sell them. And some of them sold for millions of dollars. And this is kind of like that. But the crypto kitties thing was kind of a fad. And this may be a fad too. It is part of a much bigger thing. The whole thing's, thing with blockchains and smart contracts and all of that, it's part of what I talk about in my class. It has the capability of changing a lot of things in the way they work in the world. Gavin, you were on the show in June to talk about a really big project that had been in the works for a long time. Your reporting trip was initially scheduled for 2020, then like many other things was delayed because of COVID, but then it did happen and that story came out this year. Me and uh, reporter Jennifer Barry Hawes have been working on the story about an enslaved person from Senegal named Omar Ibn Said that we were initially working on a story about his life in conjunction with an opera commissioned by Spoleto about him. And so the plan was to come out with both stories in 2020, but obviously things got postponed. It was weirdly a blessing because we were able to have more time to research and plan on our trip. And so in February of this year, we were able to travel to Senegal and basically find out more about who Omar was, what his community would have been like in Futatoro, the region that he said he was from, and kind of learn a little bit more about the slave trade and what it meant to the diaspora um, in Senegal compared to over here. Yeah, let's listen back to a little bit of that conversation with you and with Jennifer. Here in the U.S. and there in Senegal, I was really happy to hear a lot of people talk about wanting to build more bridges between the countries. Many people in Senegal, and particularly in Futa, and including in Kape particularly, expressed wanting to build relationships with South Carolina and Charleston. And I really would love to see that happen because there's a lot historically that connects us. Uh, There's a lot culturally that connects us and would love to see those relationships be built. Yeah, I think the really cool part of working on the story and, you know, just with Omar's story in general now is like there's so many people across the globe trying to find out more about him. I mean, we were working with people in Senegal. There are people in D.C. working on it. I mean, in in North Carolina. So it's like there's a network, I think, that's been really cool to be a part of in reporting the story and working on it. And kind of touching on what Jennifer's saying, I think one thing we heard that was very interesting to me that I'd never heard of or thought of was like we were at the Museum of Black Civilization in Dakar and we were speaking with the director there. And he was saying, you know, the... African diaspora and the U.S. has always tried to have a conversation with Africa, but it hasn't really been the same from Africa to the U.S., and that was something the museum was trying to work on. So that was 
something interesting I never thought of, which I'm interested in, like, hopefully can see what happens, you know, through the museum's efforts there and just, you know, over here. I think that'd be something wonderful to see, you know, a conversation about our shared history. So the Olympics are back in the news right now because of the upcoming Winter Games. But last summer, we were talking about the Olympics in Tokyo. Yeah, and it, it's always surprising when t- people talk about the South Carolina connection. There's always a South Carolina connection. And one that stood out was Raven Saunders. Yeah, Raven's an Olympic shot putter and a native of Charleston. She won the silver medal in the Tokyo Olympics. And a lot of people learned her name during the Games because after she won the medal when she was on the podium, she made an X gesture while she was on the podium, which she said was in support of all oppressed people. So so even if you didn't know who Raven was before the Olympics, that photo of Raven on the podium was seen all over the world. That in and of itself, I think, resonated with a lot of people. But also just a couple days after winning the medal, Raven lost her mother. One thing that I think was very heartwarming to see is when Raven landed back in Charleston and there was a crowd of people waiting for her to congratulate her and be there for her. And that kind of shows the kind of impact that Raven has had on the community here. And sports reporter Jeff Hartzell, you know, has been covering her athletic career since she was in high school. And we heard from him and Raven herself about her Olympic experience, overcoming obstacles and talking about mental health. It was one of those things that I'm like, you know, if something around the corner is bad, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, I won't let it break me. Like nothing, I was like, nothing in the world can stop me now. You know, things like that. So it was just like, and, you know, I would really, you know, kind of challenge like, like what, what's next? Like what's next? Because, you know, life's going to take you through its ups and downs. And then when the news of my mom came, you know, it was something that that moment in itself wasn't something that I necessarily was preparing for. But I was prepared for something or really not something, but anything, you know, anything good, anything bad, anything in between. Um, I was ready for whatever came. Uh, I always say, if you, you know, stay ready, you never have to get ready. I think it's just been amazing her growth as, as an athlete and as a person coming from her struggles with mental health and to see her come back from that and become the uh, sort of confident and well-spoken spokesperson that she's become while remaining true to herself, not changing who she is fundamentally. I think that's been very fun to watch. Charleston is hosting its 156th annual Emancipation Proclamation Parade on Saturday, January 1st. Raven Saunders will be that parade's Grand Marshal. We'll be back with more highlights from the year after this quick message. Hi, I'm Taylor Istabo, and I'm an audience engagement producer for The Post and Courier. Our digital team makes sure the paper's journalism gets to you through our newsletters, social media accounts, and website. We put a lot of thought into what tweet will communicate the most important information from a story, or might make you laugh. And we know the news. We're constantly monitoring the biggest stories of the day and figuring out how to get that information to you. When you subscribe, you're supporting that work. Visit postandcourier.com slash subscribe today.
We've talked a lot on this show about flooding problems in Charleston, including several episodes that have gone along with our Rising Waters series about sea level rise and flooding in the low country. But one story from this past year took us very far away from Charleston all the way to Greenland. Reporter Tony Bartlemy and photographer Lauren Petraka traveled there to learn more about how melting ice in Greenland affects flooding here in Charleston. I've experienced flooding here all the time and walked through it, photographed it, but kind of seeing the photographs Lauren took and hearing about how that relates over here really blew my mind. Yeah, and I think one of the most interesting things about that conversation was hearing about the experience of reporting in Greenland, how they got there, interacting with the locals. So let's listen back to one of the behind-the-scenes moments that they shared from their reporting trip. We actually uh, hung out with a fisherman, Ringo, who took us to see his sled dogs. He barely spoke English, so in Greenland they speak, uh, they mainly speak Danish or Greenlandic. So he's trying to speak English, and he took us to see his dogs, and all the dogs, all the sled dogs are kept out of the town, towns there, because sled dogs can be dangerous. So they keep them chained out of town. So he took us to see his dogs and then went into his little shed. And he kept on bringing out things to show us. You know, he brought out some rocks he'd collected. He brought some, some seal feet. Yeah, seal feet. Yeah. And then... And then he brought a trophy that he'd won. And we kept it was kind of a joke, like what what will he bring out next? But that one, you know, he 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 showed us, uh, you know, his life, and I wish we could have gotten that, into that more. Yeah, and it was pretty remarkable too. He had very limited English, and we were able to kind of communicate with him. I was showing him a picture of my dog who is a boxer, so he has a smushed face. He thought that was hilarious because they don't have dogs as pets there. They're tools. You know, he was calling us family to his dogs. He was telling his dogs to be nice to us because we're family and uh, just the nicest people in the world, even when we have very limited communication. Another reporting series that we've been following along with on this show is Uncovered our project that investigates corruption in South Carolina. One of the goals of that project is to combine resources with smaller newspapers in South Carolina, which is such a a cool idea because journalism is such a big community. So it's always great when you can work with someone at another paper, you know, to cover an issue or a topic that's important to the state. Right. And it really shows how valuable those smaller papers are. The people who report in those communities know them so well. They're going to their city council meetings. They know the other people that live in that community. But as we know, it's getting harder and harder for especially small community papers to keep printing. And two reporters, Jennifer Barry Hobbs and Stephen Hobbs, along with photographer Andrew Whitaker, covered what happens when a town loses its longtime paper. Yeah, and they also looked at what it takes to keep one of these papers going. And in October, I spoke with Graham Williams, the editor of the Union County News, and he told me what it takes to publish a paper with a two-person team. Oh my goodness, gosh. Write stories, take photos, sell ads, create ads, design pages. Let's see. Deliver papers. Pretty much anything that goes into putting together a weekly paper, I do. It's a lot going on. And, yeah, when I first started out, I thought, well, yeah, I'll do this a couple of years and get some experience and move on to the big city. It never happened. And I'm really glad it did because you have so much more of an impact 
you know, when, when people see you and know you and that type of thing, you're kind of responsible. And, and they feel like they can tell you things and give you ideas for stories, which is very helpful. And I just think that that involvement makes a big difference. We report on what's happening in the community, you know, from, from you know, beginning to end for a person, you know, birth, death, you know, weddings, engagements. We have a lot of feature stories about people. We report on local government, you know, we report on all the high school sports that's going on and anything you can think of in a local community, we pretty much cover or we try to. And people like that. We've talked a lot about COVID-19 on this show over the past two years. We've brought on multiple health experts who've waited on variants of the virus, vaccines, and pandemic fatigue. Just a few weeks ago, we spoke with Michael Sweat, director of the Medical University of South Carolina Center for Global Health, about the emerging Omicron variant of the coronavirus. At the time, there weren't any detected cases of the Omicron variant in South Carolina. That's definitely changed since then. For sure. Omicron has been found in every state and is now the dominant variant in the U.S., Unfortunately, it's become extended into what seems to be the third year now, it looks like, and it's an ever-evolving issue that we're still learning and still having to figure out as a community. And so we'll continue to bring you the news about what changes and what happens. Yeah, and since so many things about this pandemic are quickly evolving, right? We're seeing science happen in real time. It was so interesting for me since this episode was so recent to go back and listen to it and just to know what we know now about the Omicron variant. So let's listen back to a little of what he had to say. I really do think people should be optimistic. It's hard to feel that way when you're tired of all this. It just never seems to end and we get variants out of the blue. But, uh, you know, again, when you combine these amazing drugs and technologies and um, surveillance and things that we can do now, I do think the path forward is going to start looking like where you probably get a vaccine at some regular interval, maybe once a year or maybe more frequent. And if you do get sick, you would be able to test yourself quickly and get on these medications and end up being just fine. I'd say be optimistic, you know, another optimistic view I would say is it's amazing how well our society has functioned through all this. Don't get me wrong, a lot of people did suffer, but society went on and economy didn't crash. Um, So we're learning to live with it. We're also learning a lot about how to keep schools safe and kids in school, which is really important. Our biggest problem is twofold in my mind. One is we need to think more globally because if we don't get the rest of the world in the same position we are in, all these positive things, having access to vaccines, having access to these therapeutics, we'll continue to see this virus outsmart us with variants. So, you know, I anticipate that will change, that we are going to see more emphasis on ramping up vaccine access and eventually therapeutic access to the rest of the world. And the other big, big challenge is just human behavior. We have all these tools, but we just don't use them as effectively as we could. For example, a lot of people aren't getting vaccinated, and there's a lot of misinformation and conspiracy theories. And it's not just the U.S., by the way. It's really all over the world. You know, we got the tools. That's a great thing. We just have to sort of work on our solidarity and work on our sort of trusting and and go forward from there.
All right, that's all for today. We have so many more episodes from this year that we'd love for you to listen to. Check our show notes today and also subscribe to our email newsletter for a list of some of our favorites, including the episodes featured in today's podcast, plus others. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for this podcast, email us at understandsc at postandcareer.com or DM us on Twitter at understandsc. Thank you so much for listening to the show this year. Have a safe, happy, and healthy new year, and we'll be back next week. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our intro music is by Billy Fountain. Let us know what you think of the show. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com.